Someone made an interesting comment yesterday about the, the, the guillotine when we were talking about the French Revolution. The French Revolution, um, and it was th that the, on certain days they killed so many people that the blade got so dull that they had to um, you know, use it like several times to get the person's head off, like lift it back up and keep dropping it. I mean, the, that terror was really a terror. It was, it was, it was horrific um, what actually happened. Um, so it raised his hand, and afterwards he said, I was like, no, we, we should mention that. Um, the guillotine didn't do what the republic wanted it to do, which was create this humane way to basically assassinate all who were against the, um, the revolution and the republic. It, it, it didn't work very well. And like I said, eventually, like even Robespierre and Danton, they all, all of them got their, got their heads cut off as well. <laughs> so uh, that's what happens when terror is how you try and create a society. Um, and as we said yesterday, that's kind of partly what's happening in our society, um, where there's terror in two forms, the terror of those who want to create chaos, and then there's the terror of those who want conformity. There's two different ways that terror is working in our society. So you have those that would blow up stuff and create havoc and riot, and like we saw in Portland, ironically, um, in the summer of 2020. Uh, and then you have the others who would do it by saying, listen, you can only speak or think what we tell you you can speak or think, and if not, you're going to get canceled. Um, both are different ways to do terror. Um, before we get started, one of the things I didn't mention yesterday as well is if you've not read the book by um, Brother Yoon, um, and I should have shown a picture of it, The Heavenly Man. It's about a Chinese pastor who, when he's a child, he actually, um, or he's young, he, has a, he, has a, he somehow gets connected with Christianity. And, and of course, it's illegal to have a Bible in communist China. And this was recent. This was in like the 1990s. And he prays, and someone actually delivers a Bible to his house. It's a powerful story of him escaping prisons like Paul, miracle after miracle after miracle. And, of course, the Chinese government really treated him poorly. I've been to China a couple times and gone to church in China, and it, it, it's a very different environment. Um, but he comes to North America to give his testimony. And he's speaking in Canada, and a journalist from California questions the validity of all of his testimony and really kind of um, damages his reputation. And Brother Yoon says something powerful in the book. He says everything that the Chinese communist government did to him, as terrible as it was, and it was physically painful, and he was separated from his wife for years and all kinds of stuff, he says what happened to him in North America was an even worse form of persecution. The destruction of your reputation and is actually a worse form of persecution. And so we think about a time of trouble. We often think of a time of trouble coming, and we think about prison cells, and, and that's what's prophesied will happen. But I want you to know that a time of trouble can, in this day and age can be completely intangible. Um, I experienced it myself. I mean, they can go online. They, they, they literally said stuff about me and said I said things I've never said in my life. And there's no way to defend yourself. Even when I had attorneys, they said, you don't have enough ink. That was his words. We don't have enough ink to go against what the media is saying about you. you, you you'd lose the battle trying to convince um, the world that they're wrong and you're right. So we as Adventists, you know, you've got to be prepared um, to take that. Now, I, I read the quote yesterday about how Jesus suffered more than any of us could ever suffer. One of the big parts of his suffering was also the damaging of his reputation. Remember, they brought in witnesses that, that directly just lied on Jesus. 
Um, and so if he suffered that way, we, I think, have to be prepared to suffer that way as well. Amen? All right, let's get into today's talk. Um, um, go to Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9 says this, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Our message for today, the last part of our seminars, Prophecy and Social Justice, is doing justice, doing justice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to delve into your word again and into history. And we ask uh, now, Lord, that you just send your Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Lord, let me not be seen or heard. We need to hear a word from you, Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to go to the book of Numbers, the 12th chapter, and deal with one of my favorite Bible stories. In fact, this story became really important to me when I was in Israel studying and I was the only black student, and everybody else was um, mostly, or most of them were Jewish. There were a couple um, white Americans with us. Um, and my teacher was, had made what they call, in the Hebrew, they say the word aliyah, meaning he, he went home to Israel to live. He was originally from Philadelphia, so he grew up around a lot of black kids. So ironically, the teacher kind of like, like hanging out with me more than everybody else, which is kind of funny. Um, and he brought up this story in Numbers chapter 12 to say, Judaism does not condone racism. And I, so when I studied the story, I thought it was fascinating. And so I want to look at the story. There are a lot of lessons for us in this story. If you go to Numbers 12 and verse 1, it says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And so Moses married a woman who was not, did not belong to the children of Israel. I think that's the main message. Um, um, there's a lot I could say about, I'll, I'll mention some more stuff about Ethiopia here in a second, <clears throat> but I wanted to go back to my testimony yesterday. One of the ways that young men of color now are pulled out of the church is that they will say to you, Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, they even, you know, try to convince you that the first slave ship was the good ship Jesus, as if somehow Jesus had something to do with the ship. Um, and, you know, they, they bring all these different things up to try and convince you to turn away from God. And like I said yesterday, when you're sensitive because of what has gone on, you can sometimes react to that and think, you know what, I want to reject Christianity because of what's happened, because it's a white man's religion. But again, the devil is fooling people with this. I want to show you something from uh, the book, The Great Controversy. And what you're going to find out today, one of the main key points of this session, is the vindication of Ellen White. I'm going to say that again. The more I study the spirit of prophecy as a physician, scientist, historian, the more I realize Ellen White is literally one of the great, um, great writers of our age, and I mean in the last 500 years. And her, the, 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 the reason so many want to reject her is because the underlying principles and truths that she, that she, that she puts forth really causes problems for the devil's empire. Now, I want to show you what I mean by that. 
This, and there's two, two examples. At the end, there's a really beautiful story I'm going to read. It'll take, take a little while, so I've got to hurry. Okay, so the Sabbath in Africa. So I was told, well, you know, you shouldn't be a Christian because Christianity is a white man's religion. Here's what the great controversy says. In lands beyond the jurisdiction of Rome, there existed for many centuries bodies of Christians who remained almost wholly free from papal corruption. They were surrounded by heathenism and in the lapse of the ages were affected by its errors. But they continued to regard the Bible as the only rule of faith and adhered to many of its truths. These Christians believed in the perpetuity of the law of God and observed the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. You guys see that? Churches that held to faith and practice existed in Central Africa and among the Armenians of Asia. Is that not powerful? Now let's go a little deeper to show you again the unity of God's church. So Ellen White goes on. She continues. She says, um, in lands beyond the jurisdiction of Rome, there existed for many centuries bodies of Christians who remained almost wholly free from papal corruption. They were surrounded by heathenism and in the lapse of ages were affected by its errors. But they continued to regard the Bible as the only rule of faith and adhered to many of its truths. These Christians believed in the perpetuity of the law of God and observed the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. A striking illustration of Rome's policy toward those who disagree with her was given in the long and bloody persecution of the Waldenses, which brother, I know Brother Adam Ramden is probably here talking about, um, some of whom were observers of the Sabbath. Others suffered in similar manner for, the, for their fidelity to the fourth commandment. Look at this. The history of the churches of Ethiopia and Abyssinia is especially significant. Amid the gloom of the dark ages, the Christians of Central Africa were lost sight of and forgotten by the world. And for many centuries, they enjoyed freedom in the exercise of their faith. But at last, Rome learned of their existence. And the emperor of Abyssinia was soon beguiled into an acknowledgement of the Pope as the Vicar of Christ. Other concessions followed. An edict was issued forbidding the observance of the Sabbath under the severest penalties. They actually enacted basically a Sunday law in Africa. Not deep? Um, and it says, and you can see the book there, you can read, but papal tyranny soon became a yoke so galling that the Abyssinians determined to break it from their necks. After a terrible struggle, the Romanists were banished from their dominions and the ancient faith was restored. The churches rejoiced in their freedom and they never forgot the lesson they had learned concerning the deception, the fanaticism, and the despotic power of Rome. Within their uh, uh, solitary, solitary realm, they were content to remain unknown to the rest of Christendom. They retracted from the rest of the Christian world. The churches of Africa held the Sabbath as it was held by the papal church before her complete apostasy. Isn't that profound and powerful? While they kept the seventh day in obedience to the commandment of God, they abstained from labor on the Sunday in conformity to the custom of the church. Upon obtaining supreme power, Rome had trampled upon the Sabbath of God to exalt her own. But the churches of Africa, hidden for nearly a thousand years, did not share in this apostasy. When brought under the sway of Rome, they were forced to set aside the true and exalt the false Sabbath. But no sooner had they regained their independence than they returned to obedience to the fourth commandment. Here's what's powerful. There's only one African nation that was never colonized. Ethiopia. Isn't that profound? And you know what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that 
that when you know truth and you reject it, one of the consequences is captivity. I won't go further into it, but they remained. And so upset was the Pope that, that this country did not bow. This Orthodox, because it's, it's the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, so mad was the Pope that this church did not bow that during World War II, where do you think Mussolini sent his armies first? Ethiopia, Somalia, but especially Ethiopia. They wanted to take Ethiopia, and they lost. Isn't that profound? They lost. So it tells you that this great controversy was not just fought in Europe, as we often think about the 1260 years. This great controversy was a global fight. And the Armenian church in Asia, Central Africa, it tells you that all over the globe there were true Christians. When I went to China, one of the things I thought was fascinating as I met with Chinese brothers and sisters of all denominations was that when you look at it, they were teaching me that the Chinese characters for their language, if you look at it, actually speaks to Christian principles. I wish I could give that lecture, but I, I, I barely speak English, so I don't think I can do that. But it's profound when you look at that, the influence of the early church, and we'll talk more about that. And so just how did we get that? How did the truth get so far into Africa? Well, the first story in the Bible that tells you is the story between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. The Queen of Sheba went back, she had a son named Menelik, and the truth went into Africa in a profound way. In fact, when I was in Israel, they, they had an Operation um, Eagle or something like that it was called, where they were um, rescuing the Ethiopian Jews and bringing them to Israel. One of the rabbis, when we went into one of the synagogues, said that the Ethiopian Jews were the purest Jews in the world. And I said, why? He said they had not been corrupted by European rabbinic rules. So they still kept the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as it was meant to be kept. Profound, right? So then, of course, there's the Ethiopian eunuch who takes the truth into Africa, and the, and the truth stays in Africa, as we just read about in the Great Controversy. So the Bible tells you that the gospel didn't just go to one part of the world. In fact, there was probably less resistance in Africa at the time than there was in Europe. Because the, the, many of the Africans were actually already Jew, you know, monotheistic following the Torah. That's why there was an Ethiopian eunuch in Jerusalem reading the book of Isaiah. They are, I mean, think about that for a second. There was nobody in Rome reading the book of Isaiah, right? But there were people in Africa reading the book of Isaiah. So just to show you that you're taught these things, you're thought, you know, the, and he, the devil, he doesn't care how he gets us. Right? What he's doing, with white people, what I'm realizing, and when I, as I have patients, many of them are being told to go back to their pre-Christian um, uh, um, uh, ethnic religious roots. And I have a lot of colleagues that are, that are one of the young guys at church raised, uh, at my job, raised Christian, and he's like, I'm a pagan now. I said, you're a pagan? Like, like, that's your official religion? He's like, yeah. He said, because, you know, I'm actually you know, I forget, I don't know if he said he was a Viking or Celtic or what he said he was. And so he said, you know, I wanted to go back to my roots and, do the, and practice the religion of my um, ancestors. So on all sides, this is going to come up. The people are going to come in and say, listen, shake off this Western, we talked about it yesterday, patriarchal form of control. Christianity is a horrible religion. It's responsible for all the world's evils. And you need, we need to go back to the religions before. And here you have to ask yourself, and how did the world do before Christianity? I mean, if you look at the world before Christianity, it wasn't a very good place to be. The reason the Bible says in Galatians, and God sent, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. If you read the spirit of prophecy, the desire of ages, is because the world was so dark. 
I mean, they were doing human sacrifices all over the globe. I mean, the world was a horrible place. And in fact, Jesus was born just as the light was about to go off in the last little tiny corner of the world where there was light. There were very few true faithful Israelites left. When he meets one of his disciples, Jesus actually says, listen, this is Nathaniel. He is an Israelite indeed. Right? I mean, so most of the Israelites weren't even practicing correctly. So, just to show you some of the churches, just as beautiful. This is one of my have-to-go-to spots in Africa. Lalabella in Ethiopia. And look at these amazing churches. These churches are hewn out of one piece of stone. Some of the oldest churches in the world. I argue the oldest, but when I'm with my Armenian friends, they say they have older churches. Um, so, you can see the beautiful architecture. These churches go back centuries that they worshiped in these places. And a good book, if you want to read a good book, a guy, a pastor I went to Oakwood with, Yangston Sednak, a, a Ghanaian pastor, actually wrote a book called Africa's Roots in God. Um, and he has a book that outlines all through the continent, all the places um, that has evidence of the creator God all over Africa. So something actually happened. Africa was far more in tune with the truth of scripture and it was, it was lost. And that is what happened in all over Africa. I, and that's why the Bible prophesies. And the prophecy about says, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hand. And when you look at it now, probably the most, the most consistently Christian part of the world is sub-Saharan Africa. And if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, we send missionaries to Africa. I'm like, they could send us some missionaries, honestly. <laughs> Folk are like, they take Christianity very serious. When I've been in Zambia, Malawi, South Africa, um, I was preaching in Ghana. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I almost, I mean, I'm humbled because you go to some places that are very simple, but people take Christianity very seriously. Look at what's happening in Nigeria. I mean, the northern part is more Muslim, the southern part is more Christian, and we're watching massacres happen. And people aren't giving up their faith. People are dying Christians right now in Nigeria and in other parts of um, North Africa and across Africa. So I wanted to plug that just because that is one of the arguments when I was, when the, when the devil was pulling me out from the truth, that was one of the great arguments they had. And when I studied, I said, the opposite is true. Christianity went everywhere. And there were Christians everywhere. All over the world, there were Christians. All right, so back to the story. Numbers 12, 2. And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? So Miriam and Aaron are jealous. They're upset. He marries an Ethiopian woman. They start talking some smack. You know, does God only speak to Moses? Because remember, Miriam was a prophet as well. And the Lord heard it. Let me tell you something. You got to be careful what you say about folk. Because they might not hear you. But the Lord hears you. And there's a lot of churches where people go home and they have the pastor for lunch. And it's not right. Right? <laughs> the Lord hears it. <laughs> That's one of the lessons from this story. Um, and so you never, you really never want to speak something about someone you wouldn't say in their face. That's the litmus test of how you deal with people, right? Verse three. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which are upon the face of the earth. This is the compliment Moses gets. He's meek. He's humble. Despite all that Moses has, despite all that he's done for God, it does not go to Moses' head. There's a reason Elijah and Moses are in heaven right now. And, and Moses was so meek, so humble. It, you know, 40 years he was trained to be Pharaoh's heir apparent, or at least one of Pharaoh's gen top generals. Moses could have had one of the greatest earthly lives 
uh, in all of history if he had just shut up and followed the path of being an Egyptian son of Pharaoh. But he was humble. And God, you know how God had to teach him? He made him deal with sheep. Isn't that crazy? In order to deal with God's people, you first got to deal with sheep. Maybe we should add that to the, to the curriculum at the seminary. Um, so Moses was humble. And that's a big part of the lesson here. The Christian cannot be arrogant. There's no such thing as an arrogant Christian. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. If you're arrogant by default, you cease to be Christian. You can call yourself Christian, but you're not really a Christian. Remember the sin, the first sin of Sodom from yesterday? What is it? Pride. So every time, and let me tell you something, Satan likes to hijack you, us on the way to the rostrum, on the way to the pulpit, on the way to the front of the church. He likes to stand in front of the congregation of God. If you go there in pride to preach or teach Sabbath school or to do a special music, he will hijack you and corrupt you. So when you are one of the ones who must present and stand before the people of God singing, I know there are many people here who do, you must take extra time for humility. And the Lord spoke suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out, so they went and they stood in front of the, 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 the tabernacle, the holy and the most holy place. And the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forth. And the picture I get is like the three of them are standing in a line, like in Pathfinders, and the two that are in trouble have to take two steps forward, Right? And so Moses stays back. His brother and sister go forward. God is like their father. You see how he's a loving father dealing with them here, right? And they came forth and he said, and he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. God says, if there's a prophet, I will give him a vision. I will give him a dream. He says, but that's not how I deal with Moses. Moses is more than a mere prophet. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. This is a story of redemption. Moses was a murderer. I mean, you got to remember where Moses was raised in heathenism, paganism, murdered a man, was ready to, he was ready to fill the purpose God had for him by violence and force, like the social justice movements of the day. He rose up against a man and killed somebody. And guess what happened? It came to not. It delayed his work 40 years. That's what violent protest does. So, 8, verse 8. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? How dare you, Miriam and Aaron? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. And behold, as they go, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam and beheld she was leprous. I'm sure Aaron saw her turn leprous. <laughs> I was talking to... <laughs> in the Bible, in the Greek, Ethiopia, Ethiopia means dark skin, burnt skin people. So here is an interesting, they, they don't like him for marrying a 
in the, the actual word would say a dark-skinned person, and her punishment is her skin turns white as leprosy. Now, that's not, most of you people call yourselves white, you're not actually white. You know, we're all, we say black, we're really brown and tan, and her, leprosy made your skin actually devoid of color. That was the punishment. But here's what, how it affects everybody else. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. So now they're not talking junk about Moses. They're begging him for help. Isn't that how life works? Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed, when he cometh out of his mother's womb. And he said, listen, man, don't let this happen to our sister. You, can't, you, know, you don't let, him, let this thing eat our sister up. We don't want our sister messed up like she was born messed up. Come on, Moses, help us. Clearly God will listen to you. Moses, this is why Moses is such a great man. No matter what people did to him, he still went to God. That's why he's a type of Christ. Because he would always go before God. When God said, listen, I'm going to wipe them all out and raise up a nation from you, Moses. Moses said, no, kill me and let them live. That's what Jesus did for us. And Moses cried unto the Lord saying, heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. Look at God's response. And the Lord said unto Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. He said, listen, if her father had insulted her, it would be seven days that she would be ashamed. I'm the God of heaven, and she insulted me. Look at the consequences when prejudice rises up amongst God's people. Look at verse 15. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days. And the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. What happened because of this sin of Aaron and Miriam? The whole nation stopped the progress towards the promised land. If our churches are not a place of love and unity... And I know, I, you know, listen, I, I hear it sometimes because I grew up at one of the predominantly black churches. I talked yesterday about the fact that at some point, and we need to start praying about it, how is it that our church will go away from two separate conferences based on historically race? Maybe there was a good reason for it when it started, but that's a tough thing. The prayer has to be that we would go into a system of true unity. So instead of going in my comfort zone and going back to the predominantly black, now predominantly West Indian church I grew up at in Hartford when I moved back to Connecticut, I go to a church where every, all kinds of people go. And I do that, and everybody's like, why, why you don't come back to our church? You know, why are you over at that church? Because my church looks more like what heaven's going to look like. And there's nothing wrong, but obviously the neighborhoods, you have churches that are language-based. I'm not saying, you know, that churches can't be more homogenous, but we are going to have to begin to think very differently if we're going to finish the work. And what I'm going to show you is that the early Adventist church prioritized saving souls over everything else. Over everything else. Everything was secondary to the saving of souls. So Acts chapter 2 says it like this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Until our church gets back to this point, we will not move as we should towards the promised land. The heavenly Canaan. And this is a tough thing. It's not easy to talk about because, I, you know, people don't like me when I say this stuff. But somehow the truth has to be spoken. Somebody's got to stand up and say it. Ridiculous is ridiculous. 
we were witnessing to a couple. The, the husband was white. The wife was, um, was a fair, very fair-skinned black woman, but she was, she was black, and they had two beautiful children, and we were witnessing to them. And when, we, when they found out that we had two separate conferences in Florida, they did not want Bible study anymore. They said, wait a minute, you have a segregated church? It's a mixed-race couple. And they were like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. I couldn't even, yeah, I couldn't even explain it. So what does it do? Well, racism and prejudice angers a just God. It damages the victim, but it also harms the perpetrator. If you think you're actually better than someone else, it doesn't do you any good because you lose the ability to be meek like Moses was. It creates disease. We talked about that yesterday. But it stops the progress of people, of God's people. Now, the racial tension we see in America, I didn't get to this yesterday, so I want to bring it in today, is actually prophesied by Jesus as one of the end time uh, indicators. And I'm going to show you, Matthew 24, 7 to 8, if you listen to my sermons, you see this. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famine and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The word for nation there is the Greek word ethnos. It's the word from which we in the English get the word ethnicity. What Jesus actually prophesies here is that as you come towards the end of time, different ethnic groups, racial groups, more ethnic is actually probably a better way to really look at it, are going to rise up against each other. This is not speaking of the world wars that were spoken of, I believe, in verse 6, right? And there should be wars and rumors of wars. This is speaking to people groups not being able to get along outside of actual formal nations. This is talking about what happened in, like, Rwanda. This is talking about what happened in Europe during World War II, outside of the actual war, the genocide that happened against German Jews and Dutch Jews. And, uh, you see what I'm saying? It, it speaks to the, 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 the division between, and, and the, now, you know, like I said yesterday, I think during the 70s, almost as if America was almost doing a better job going to the 70s and 80s of being a racially cohesive environment that has been broken in the last 10, 12 years and fragmented and pulled apart, right? That's what this prophecy is speaking to, that there is going to be a radical change in the way people deal with each other. And here's the kicker. It cannot be so in the church. The church has to be the place where the whole world looks and says, how do they do it differently? How is it that that happens there? And until we get to that point, we're going to be in trouble. This is one of the, this should have been at the end of the slide, but I'll, I'll just show it here. Our job as the church is to do this. It's to actually help bring this line down, the slope of this line down, so people have less of a burden to push against, the health burden. We'll come back to that. But this is one of the reasons why we have to be unified, Right? We have to be all in one in order to do this. Here's what Ellen White says. I'm telling you, if you haven't read the book, The Southern Work, you're, you're going to see Ellen White very differently after this, after this lecture. She says, walls of separation have been built up between the whites and the blacks. These walls of prejudice will tumble down of themselves, as did the walls of Jericho, when Christians obey the word of God, which enjoins on them supreme love to their maker and impartial love to their neighbors. Let me say this. The Adventist church is unique. It is one of, if, if it's not, it's one of the only, if not the only denomination in all of America that was never anything but abolitionist. 
But you guys don't know what that means. In other words, Adventists never had a stance for slavery. In fact, Adventists were always actively anti-slavery. Why? Because they prioritized the souls of black people more than the culture of the day. Isn't that powerful? As an Adventist, that's something to be proud of. The church has not been perfect since, but the wheat and tear parable tells you why that would happen. Right? If there was a church that started that way, the enemy would send in folk to make sure it doesn't stay that way. So that's one thing. Uh, but this was, it, it was a, a unique stance. And, they, and bottom line is they said, listen, Jesus is about to return. We don't have time for prejudice. We've got to win every soul. And, the, and who spearheaded that in many ways was Ellen White, as I'm going to show you. So I want to give you an example. One of the people I studied the most, especially when I was drifting away from God, was the brother there in the glasses. His name is Malcolm X. Many of you have heard of him probably. His, he, he, when he went to Mecca and came back, he actually changed his views. He stopped being a nation of Islam, a follower of Farrakhan. Some people say that it was Farrakhan who had him assassinated. Uh, he was actually killed by fellow members of his former religion, the nation of Islam. I don't know that Farrakhan had anything to do with it, but some people say that. Um, and Malcolm X... Um, changed his name to El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. He's there, what, what at the time was one of his best friends, the great Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest boxers of all times. I would argue the greatest, if nothing else, definitely the greatest in hype in a fight. Um, and so they were very good friends, both members of the Nation of Islam, by the way. Muhammad Ali's refusal to go to Vietnam and fight was rooted in his membership in the Nation of Islam. But I want to read something for you. I read this at churches every February for Black History Month. I'll be at Walla Walla um, doing a Black History uh, talk, Black History Month talk, the Friday, one Friday, the first Friday night in February. So if you're in the area, come through. Tomorrow I'll be at the Vancouver Church here in Washington. So I'll be, I'll be busy. You won't see me tomorrow. Here we go. Look at this. This is from Autobiography of Malcolm X, page 21. It says this. Before long, my mother spent much time with the Adventists. This is Malcolm X's mother. We began to go with my mother to the Adventist meetings that were held further out in the country. For us children, I know it was the good food they served. Did you see that? Malcolm X liked the veggie food. Some of y'all struggling with it. The Adventists felt we were living at the end of time, that the world was soon coming to an end. Look at this testimony. But they were the friendliest white people I had ever seen. This book is mandatory reading in predominantly black schools all over America. What a powerful testimony that the greatest black nationalist in American history, his only comment on the Seventh-day Adventist church is they were the, they had the best food. Somebody else say amen to that veggie food. And they were the nicest white people he had ever met. I don't think you understand the significance of that statement. That is a powerful statement. It speaks to where our church was at the time. It didn't matter. And this was in Michigan, and he's from Lansing. So if you know folk in the Michigan Conference, this was the, this was the way the church operated. Look at what Ellen White says. She says, I'm going to tell you, you're going, you're going, Ellen White says some stuff folk wouldn't say now. Southern Work, page, two, page 12 says, The day is coming when the kings and the lordly men of the earth would be glad to exchange places with the humblest African who has laid hold on the hope of the gospel. Now remember when she was saying this, Africa was completely colonized. 
In America, they had just come out of slavery. Eloi said, listen, if one of them holds on to the gospel, it'd be better to be them than Louis XVI or Napoleon, as we studied yesterday. On the day of judgment, when the, when the, when the dead in Christ rise, and all of those slaves who took the word of God seriously and became Christians begin to rise to meet Jesus, there are going to be a many a, a, a king and a president looking up as they go up, wishing, if they're in the special resurrection, I should say. Look at this. She says, if they believe on him, his cleansing blood is applied to them. The black man's name is written in the book of life beside the white man's. All are one in Christ. Birth, station, nationality, or color cannot elevate or degrade men. Look at what she says long before Martin Luther King Jr. says it. The character makes the man. You know what we have to be careful of? I have to be careful of? All of us have to be careful of? Sometimes you, you, we forget this statement. I'm worried when I go into a place, man, are they judging me because of my color? You know what? I've got to be rest assured. The only only person that matters is the one looking at my character, and that's God. People don't like me otherwise than that. That's not my problem. Because I don't live this life to earn men's approval. If I do that, I will be lost. I live this life to earn the approval of the creator God. And that only happens if I take on the robe of his righteousness If I'm covered in his righteousness, that's the only way it happens. Because ultimately, when God sees me, it's not the melanin in my skin. It's the content of my character that he will look at. Here's what Galatians says. 3, 26 through 29 says this. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and his and ears according to the promise. I don't have to become a black Hebrew Israelite. I want brother from our church, dude, you don't get it. We're Israelites. That means we get the promises of Abraham. I don't have to have somebody tell me that. I get that from the book of Galatians. And it does, it's not genetic. I don't need a bloodline back all the way to Aaron or Moses or whoever it is. I get that by faith in the blood of Christ. That's why this this text is so powerful. After this, I beheld in low a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, represents character, and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Heaven will be truly diverse. Ellen White says, when the sinner is converted, he receives the Holy Spirit. That makes him a child of God and fits him for the society of the redeemed and the angelic host. He has made a joint heir with Christ. Whoever of the human family gives themselves to Christ, whoever hear the truth and obey it, become children of how many families? One family. The ignorant and the wise, the rich and the poor, the heathen and the slave, white or black, Jesus paid the purchase money for their souls. If they believe on him, his cleansing blood is applied to them. I just read this part. All are one in Christ. The character makes the man. Um, so let me, let me jump here. So I want to get to this because I need to get through. So I'll skip those. 
I showed, you, I showed you this slide. And what is it then that our churches have to do? If we really are going to be social justice activists in a biblical sense, to do justice, seek mercy, and walk humbly before our God, how do we do that? There are a few things I would recommend as a physician and public health specialist. Number one, health education. Our churches have to become really good at teaching health information. So reading food labels, cooking classes, stress management. We talked about the dangers of stress yesterday. Number two, family relationship resources, marriage relationship support and counseling, parenting classes. Do you know that um, although all, I showed you the, the data yesterday on uh, the number of children born in single family homes and the differences and how much you earn and you know so when people talk about the government should solve the problem of poverty they neglect usually to mention that one of the key causes of poverty based on the data I showed you yesterday is actually just broken homes that if we had intact families they you actually do better and what was interesting from the data is that if you cohabitate and are not married the poverty levels are the same, right? I talked about that yesterday and how this is, you know, God gives you a little evidence that his way is the best way. And that is societal evidence that, suggest, that would suggest that. Now, how important then is it for our church to do two things? Be exemplary in having Christian godly marriages. And how important is it our church then that we share that information with the people around us? You see, a lot of folks' marriages are breaking up because they're being told lies that, like, you know, a little pornography in your marriage is good. And what happens, of course, is it destroys the marriage. The husband begins to look down on his... I mean, I, you know, I won't get into that. Our churches can be places where we say, listen, if you're having trouble with your child, we have, we have Adventist therapists, we have Adventist professionals. I'm not just saying any willy-nilly person does it. But we should be having the kind of seminars... Dr. Neil Nedley does a lot of this work where we bring people in and say, listen, we will transform your home. Because relationships, good relationships is one of the keys to good health. All right. Financial literacy. We have stewardship. We talk about stewardship. This is one of the things that we can have a lot. A lot of Americans are drowning in debt. This inflation has happened. Some people say there's no inflation. I'm not sure where they're living. Because when we go to the grocery store, I come out limping. I feel like somebody punched me in the leg. I said, man... Honey, that hurt. I don't know how much this food costs so much nowadays. You go to the gas station, you close your eyes, you don't want to see the price. Right? But we've got to have tutoring and educational. What kind of church would we be? If our, and this is why I said we, it should be, our church's focus should be geographic. So if you live in this area, you're all one conference, so all the resources go together. So that we could actually have really strong and profound um, tutoring programs after school in neighborhoods where the schools are terrible. In fact, one of the things that I suggest at many churches is we should set up sanctuary schools. And what I mean by that is, not sanctuary like run and hide, but sanctuary like the sanctuary message, right? And we should have schools where people, get, where kids in the neighborhood can actually get high school credit to take religious and health classes. And it should go plug right back into places that are phenomenal, like Blue Mountain Academy, Right? They should plug in and they could register for a small fee and the church can sponsor them and they can do, even if it's distance learning with all the technology today, and get that education and get credits towards graduating from high school. And if we get really sophisticated, we could offer advanced placement classes that if they go to one of our Adventist schools, it counts if they go to college at Southern or Walla Walla or wherever. Are you getting what I'm saying? 
We can get, in, we can get innovative and actually begin to transform the world. We could do this for people outside of the country that can't get a green card to get into the country. You, you get what I'm saying? They can't get a student visa. There's things that we can do. Uh, ESL is a big one. English as a second language would be a huge one that many of our churches could do, right? Another one is community engagement. We, I talked about this yesterday. Community gardens. What would happen if we, all the churches in the region said, listen, how can we create community gardens or community farms and then take that produce and make sure that people uh, who could benefit from it get it? It's tough to walk in. You know, I've seen them go into the hood in L.A. and do these amazing talks on health and living better. And the only things around are, are corner stores and, 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 you know, and, 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 and stuff like that. Like, there's nowhere to get fresh produce. Imagine if we, the church, did that. And what if we had farmer's markets at churches with big lots? Um, what if we did, you know, we do health fairs. But tie all of this together. And again, part of the reason our churches don't do better is simple. It's because we work in silos. So our health department is working, and your health department is working. If we coalesced, picked regions, and this year we deal with this part of town, we're going to go in and do this, and we're going to set this up. And the next year, trying to do it all by ourselves creates no synergy, and it doesn't work. And hopefully we move to a place where, like the, like the disciples, everyone was in one place and on one accord before the Holy Spirit fell, Right? One of the biggest things our church has to start to do is deal with mental health issues. I talked about the legalizing of marijuana yesterday for a reason. It is a part of the social justice movement that you should be free to smoke whatever you want, do drugs as much as you want. The problem with that idea is this stuff is addicting. And yeah, just like the Bible says, they promise you liberty, right? You get to feel good with cocaine, but then you're stuck being a crack addict the rest of your life. So how do we help people break those things? One, we, some, we've got to stand up. And can, Ellen White was, she fought against alcohol, cigarettes. I mean, when I was in Pasadena in the health department, I stumbled upon the fact Ellen White was actually a part of a group of non-Adventist women. She worked with and uh, labored with in Pasadena who were um, prohibitionists against and fought against tobacco. When I was bringing up anti-tobacco legislation or policy in the city as the health director, I was shocked to find Ellen White had beat me to the punch. I hope you guys are getting what I'm saying. Before I was born, yes, but, but still. <laughs> My point is, this is the kind of work you do. And marijuana, I, I'll say it again today, for who's wearing it yesterday, literally one of the greatest scourges released on America is the legalization of marijuana. When people can profit off of making you high, they will, they will make, you so, make you high until they kill you. And the fact that it, the, the percentage of THC in marijuana has gone from 3% in the 70s to 30% now tells you marijuana is going to wipe out a lot of people. It is a gateway drug. They'll tell you it's not. The way that it works on the postsynaptic dopaminergic receptors means that if you do marijuana and then take any other drug, you're far more likely to get addicted to the second drug. That's why marijuana users are, that never smoke cigarettes, start smoking marijuana, are far more likely to become nicotine addicts. This is what has been released on America. Canada beat us to the punch on this one, I think, as a whole nation. But I want you to get this is going to cause major problems. The mental health crisis. I see kids anxious, depressed at 10 and 12 years old. I didn't even know what it was meant to be depressed when I was 10 years old. I just want to go outside and play and get my chores done. That was it. That was good. So we've got to create addiction recovery support programs. 
the plant-based diet that our church promotes actually helps the recovery of the mind after addiction. Along with exercise and proper sleep, the new start is one of the key ways you can actually restore a mind that has lost much of its function because of addiction. The Bible says, uh, the Old Testament prophet says, God will restore unto you the land that the locusts have taken. That is the truth about the brain of a former addict if they follow the principles of health. We've got to share that with our communities. That's the work of social justice. People say, well, social justice, you know, let's defund the police. All right, so the police don't have any money now. Now what? I mean, do the, the neighborhoods get all better because there's no police? Not the neighborhoods I grew up in. I wasn't a great fan of the police growing up, but I tell you what, I was oftentimes very happy to see them. Because I didn't want to, you know, the, what was happening in the street was far worse. So that's not going to solve the problem. It's a character issue. And if it's a character issue, it's a Jesus issue. And so we've got to lift up Christ in these neighborhoods. We've got to show who he is. We've got to be benevolent and helping and loving, even to those who it seems we would never be, be, uh, 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 assimilate ourselves with. But I want to tell you that that's the work Christ did. He went to places nobody else would go. The Pharisees, what kind of man is this? He eats with publicans and sinners. Every church should be involved in that work. It is the work of the last days. The Revelation seminars don't go over well on hungry bellies. Here's what Ellen White says. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge, making a way for other truths to reach the heart. When the third angel's message is received in its fullness, health reform will be given its place in the councils of the conference, in the work of the church, in the home, at the table, and in all the household arrangements. Then the right arm will serve and protect the body. As the world becomes more anti-Christian, this is the one thing people want, is to be healthy. And I can tell you as a doctor, a whole lot of the stuff on the internet is complete malarkey. It is foolishness. I see people telling people to do stuff. I mean, there's one guy, black people really listen to this one dude. I won't say his name. And the guy's like, broccoli is bad. It's an amalgamation of these plants. Don't eat broccoli. I said, how are you going to take health advice from telling somebody to tell you don't eat broccoli? But I didn't make it. I mean, how do you even begin? The cruciferous vegetables are amazing. What are you talking about? Right? So who is going to tell people the truth about some stuff? Right? So this is what she says. But I want to point out one other thing, because some people will say, all right, I'm going to do the health message and nothing else. Look at what Ellen White says here. She goes on to say, but while the health work has its place in the promulgation of the third angel's messages, message, its advocates must not in any way strive to make it take the place of the message. How profound. You know why? Because there's some folks who say, listen, we're just going to do health fairs and serve people and do health education, and we're never going to deal with Daniel, Revelation, or the end of the world. It does not take the place of the call for people to come out of Babylon. It is the arm, not the body. Which means we have to be bold and smart and cunning and wise and humble in our approach to our communities, but we have got to lift up Jesus. All right, so I'm going to finish with the story I told you I was going to finish with about Ellen White. This is Sunnyside. When I went to Australia the first time, they, or, or maybe the second time, they took me to Ellen White's 
a home in, in down there. And what I found interesting is while she was here, her son was doing, while well, she was in Australia, her son was doing a great work in the United States. So this is her family here. Um, and then this is the boat, the Morning Star. So they actually have these pictures hanging here, which makes, didn't make sense at the time, but it makes sense when you study it because you're going to see while she's in Australia, some special things are happening. All right, so let's go. There's a, it's a bit of a story to read, but I'm going to read it. The Morning Star had been built well to, well to fulfill the many purposes of which it was intended. It provided a home for Edson and Emma, her son, a place to print the gospel message, a place on board to hold meetings, a place to meet people. It was the means of spreading good news to a broader field than any stationary chapel. How forward-thinking were they? They basically had a gospel boat. You know, Batman has a boat. They had a gospel boat, right? And it pioneered the way for others who would meet the tough problem of race prejudice in the South. The small staff who heroically ran the boat were definitely pioneers in the fullest meaning of the word. Look at this. These early workers and believers faced two kinds of prejudice. Watch this. Racial and religious. The black ministers opposed them because they were teaching Sabbath observance and tithe paying. The white people opposed them because they were educating the blacks and introducing new and better agricultural methods, which threatened to break the stronghold of poverty in the Mississippi Delta. Watch this. Edson had begun his Vicksburg work with Sunday schools and night classes in the Mount Zion Baptist Church on Fort Hill when he was excluded from the church for his belief in the Sabbath. You see that? Way back then. He built a little chapel at the corner of Walnut and First East Street, but this was only after 10 days of fervent prayer that had resulted in permission from Adam and City Council members to grant a permit for building a church for the blacks. Once the work had been established in Vicksburg, they had ventured into the heart of the Delta using the Yazoo River as their main highway. Halfway up the river to Yazoo City, he had tried to establish a school for the hundreds of black children in the area who had no facilities for education. He was soon informed by the county superintendent of education that his work must stop. And later learned that in the mob that accompanied the superintendent was one man who had volunteered to hold a Winchester, a gun, on, on all white, Edson White, while you all fetch the rope. They were going to lynch Ellen White's son for educating black people. Isn't that profound? This was the work of our church. I want you, uh, this, this history, this social justice history is important. A little later, the Morning Star had been of great service to the plantation owners of the area. Had been of great service to the plantation owners of the area, rescuing many of their animals during a flood. The next winter, Edson brought in tons of food and clothing to relieve the suffering among the black tenant farmers who were facing starvation from crop failures and severely cold weather. Then, with some measure of confidence among both the whites and blacks, they built a little chapel and a schoolhouse. You see that? The whites and blacks actually worked together in Mississippi in the late 1800s. They could work together then. They should be able to work together now. Right? They built a little chapel house at Kalmar. Later, the work there was stopped also. On the boat, Edson had edited and published a monthly journal, The Gospel Herald. One issue carried a mildly critical editorial of the sharecropper system, which was a horrible system. And this, along with the fact that so many of the blacks were becoming Adventists and refusing to work on Saturdays, spurred the plantation owners to action. A mob of 25 men on horseback called at the school, sent the white teacher, one of Edson's men, out of town on a rail, nailed the doors and windows shut, and burned books, maps, and charts in the schoolyard. 
took the white teacher, put him on a train, nailed it shut, and sent him out of town. You know how uncomfortable it is to be in a train, you can't open a door or a window? Then they found one of the leading black believers in the area, N.W. Olvin, and trashed him with a buggy whip. They thrashed him. They beat him with a whip. They stopped only when commanded to do so by a white man who brandished a revolver. While the work was broken up at Kalmar, it continued to thrive at Yazoo City in Vicksburg. And in the years shortly after Edson left for Nashville, there were encouraging developments in a large number of other Mississippi towns. Look at, listen to this one. One hair-raising episode occurred when the Morning Star escaped being dynamited in Yazoo City, having left town only hours earlier with the General Conference President and Secretary on board, F.R. Rogers, who taught the Yazoo City School, uh, was ordered by a mob to close his school and was shot at in the streets. This was the Southern work. This is what happened in the United States to reverse the injustice. Ellen White, and I don't have time to read all the quotes, she speaks about our obligation to go to the former slaves and educate them. In fact, Ellen White gives the command, you are not to evangelize the former slaves until you have educated them. Isn't that profound? We talked about it yesterday because you, you can't really choose if you don't, if you don't like education is how you make good choices. This is the work of our church. This is the foundation upon which our church was built. This is how we got Oakwood University, where I graduated. When I graduated from Oakwood, it was still one of the top six schools in America in producing black doctors. And it exists because Ellen White sanctioned and sent her son, her own son, into the South just after the Civil War, just after the end of slavery, to reverse the wrongs of slavery. What a power. So, and, you know, I remember once I was, I was, with, um, I was working at Loma Linda, um, a Sunday morning, I was, I was a medical director for the urgent care on the East Campus, and a, one of the white nurses came to me, slammed down this big packet she'd gotten at a Sabbath school class the day before at the, at the university church, and said, and she looked at me, and she, with, like shaking, she said, Ellen White was a racist. I said, who told you that? She said, hey, that's what they taught us in Sabbath school yesterday, and she gave me all the materials. What, that's, foolishness is an understatement. But it happens because people don't Read for themselves. They don't study for them. Would a racist send their son into the South after the Civil War? Not likely. Or say some of the things that are said in the book, The Southern Work? Not likely. Does she say some things that may sound weird? Yeah, but she lives in a time when weird stuff was just said. Right? The stuff we do today, I mean, if the world lasted another thousand years, people would look back on some of the stuff done today and be like, what in the world were they thinking? Like, why do they have dogs in bags and giving them cookies? You know, like, what were they thinking? I'm just kidding. I'm just, just kidding. All right. So, last slide on this. Edson had informed his mother of these developments during her years in Australia, which is why I started at the, at the house in Australia. And her instruction was of caution and, pre- and prudence as the only course available to the church if they wished to continue to witness and work in the South. This was as true for the work among the whites as among the blacks. Even though in his contacts, Edson said nothing about political matters, even though he did not mention inequalities or need for social justice, you see that? Even he understood it. The mere fact that he was educating blacks and trying to improve their economic condition nearly cost him his life and the lives of his wife, his wife, fellow workers, and believers. How powerful. 
this talk, this five-part series on social justice, I, I want to basically end at the beginning. Our, this is the work that our church did. It changed the world. I just got back from India. It was very powerful. I, I spoke at the Christian medical school there. Um, and it was real powerful to hear how Adventists were participants in getting the Christian medical school, uh, you know, be a part of the medical school. To this day, Adventists get to choose students to come to the school and be educated. And all across the country, the, some of the best schools in India to this day are, ed, are Adventist schools. We got to go back to that. We got to go back to a work that is not about, you know, the, the way that Christianity has contorted into a gospel of prosperity, a self-self, I-I type of thinking, where we all sacrifice for the cause of finishing the work. The Bible says in, this, in Matthew 24, and this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. This work is an important work. There's a need for it. And we, in this room, are family. In fact, let me tell you something. I have brothers and sisters and cousins that are my blood that are not family to me like family I have in my church. And I don't just mean in my local church. I mean across the country. I have Asian brothers and sisters that are like this with me because we share a love for Jesus Christ. White, Spanish, doesn't matter. Because I know one day that's who I'm going to spend eternity with. I'm, I, that's, my family is the family I'm going to have forever. Not the family I was born with, the family I'll be left with. Amen? Amen. We're going to end here. I'm going to close with prayer. If you have questions, because I know our time is up, um, you can stay behind. We can talk for a few minutes. Um, but I don't want to cause anybody to not get to whatever happens next. I have no idea what happens next. So um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the message of hope and love that is in the Bible. And in a world full of hatred, discrimination, prejudice, injustice, Lord, we seek to be your hands and feet. We, speak, we seek to be your voice of truth and of peace and of love. Lord, I pray for our denomination, our conferences, our unions. Lord, I pray for every member. Father God, you would remove the tears. Lord, the shaking would have its effect. And Father God, we would build a church that is unified around the blood of Jesus Christ, around the promise of eternity, and energized by your soon return. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.